Hi, this is Kevin Richards coming back uh, from the University of Illinois with another segment of going behind the research. Uh, this time, uh, we're going to be talking to Jen Jacobs and Zach Wall-Alexander from Northern Illinois University. Um, uh, and uh, we're going to be talking broadly about uh, a project that they've been uh, involved with for several years now called Project Flex. Um, but we are still going to do what we usually do and link an article in the show notes. And so Jen and Zach have shared the paper that's titled Physical Activity and Social Behaviors of Incarcerated Youth Participating in a Sport Leadership Program. That is coming out in the Journal of Correctional, uh, uh, Correctional Healthcare, Journal of Correctional Healthcare. It is currently uh, in press and we'll get the, the version uh, that gets posted online posted to the show notes. Um, but just as a reminder, rather than providing a forum to discuss research that is conducted in health and physical education, the going behind the research segment focuses on telling the stories that surround research uh, that we read in scholarly journals. Globally, the segment aims to humanize research by providing a forum to discuss the motives that draw researchers towards topics and studies, challenges and successes experienced along the way, and lessons learned that uh, transcend individual journal publications and impact future research decisions. Each episode will uh, feature an interview with one or more members of an authorship team to discuss the stories behind um, a, a selected publication or broader project. Um, uh, and we'll include a brief overview of the project, uh, and then we'll follow a relatively uh, common interview guide uh, that asks questions. But as you've, you've probably uh, been able to tell if you've listened to previous episodes, sometimes we get to the, all of those questions, sometimes we don't. Um, so, so with that, I'm really excited to welcome uh, Jen and Zach uh, to, talk about, uh, to talk about their work with us today. Um, could, could you both introduce yourselves? My name is Zach Wall. Um, I'm an associate professor in sport pedagogy at Northern Illinois University. Hey, Kevin and everyone. I am Jen Jacobs. Um, I'm also at NIU with Zach. Um, I'm an associate professor in the area of sports psychology, and we are pumped to be here. Awesome. Um, really happy to welcome you both. Um, I, I worked at Northern Illinois for a year. Uh, it was one of the one of the best years of, of my academic career that it was a visiting assistant professorship year, really formative time and and got to know uh, Jen while I was there and, and Zach afterwards. So th th this kind of feels like, uh, I don't know, what would it be circa 2014? Yeah. You, you muted yourself there, buddy. Myself, I know. We And it's funny because we also like sort of crossed paths as well when you came down to Alabama that year when you were interviewing. I was a doc student. And then we kind of like, we like live swapped a little bit because I took your your apartment here and then you went down to Alabama. So it was a, uh, I think I'd tell you more like, but the circuit is more like serendipitous, I'd say. It was. Uh, in fact, I think I was, I think I actually moved into the office that you had been working in um, before, uh, before you, uh, before you finished at Alabama. So Really cool connections, um, and I had the the honor and pleasure of of working with uh, with Jen on her dissertation committee, uh, um, and and we've remained really good friends and collaborators since. So, uh, really cool um, uh, to to host you both today. So so without any further ado, let's let's start uh, broad. Um, th th this this episode might end up going a little bit differently because I think we're going to talk more about Project Flex as as a broad concept and a, and a broader project rather than focusing on an individual publication. Um, but why don't we start broad? And, and, and if you could, Jen, just talk to us a little bit about Project Flex, maybe the, the, a, a little bit of the history, why, how, how it started and, and uh, how it's become kind of this line of inquiry and a passion for you. Absolutely. 
Um, so Project Flex is a sport leadership program in a space that you probably don't see in the physical activity realm often. Um, it is in youth prisons um, outside of Chicagoland. So we work with incarcerated youth running what started out as what looked like a sort of after school program. Of course, it is in the confines of a prison setting, so it looks quite different, which we'll get into. Um, but over the past five years that we've been doing this has evolved into being more of a mentorship program, um, still through the realm of sport, physical activity and fitness. Um, it's, it's morphed into being sort of a college readiness experience as well, where we're getting youth opportunities to visit college campuses and start to envision a possible future, um, in higher education. Um, it's, it's morphed into some sports specific programs. So dabbling in um, a basketball program and a pickleball program, which is extremely exciting to um, me because that's been a passion in my life. Um, but generally the, the thread that's remained throughout is that um, we're, we're trying to provide youth the opportunity to sort of reimagine what their possible futures could look like um, using sport as the hook sport is the thing that, um, helps us connect. Um, and sort of one of the philosophies of our program is, um, congruent with sort of the field of sport-based leadership and that's building strong relationships. So, um, while Zach and I started the program five years ago, we quickly figured out two, older white, like nerdy professors are really not the play to go in and try to, um, help, you know, kids think differently about different paths in their lives. So we, um, assemble this superstar squad of graduate students who live and breathe this program and sport and mentoring and just do that amazing on the ground work, working with these kids from really tough backgrounds. That's uh, and, that, that's, uh go ahead, Zach. Sorry. Yep. And to jump, to jump in a little bit. So we started this program five years ago. And when we started, we were working with one graduate student um, and we were working in one facility and really just working with about 10 or 15% of that population in that facility. And then over the last five years, we've actually expanded to three of the five facilities within the state, which has been really fun too. It, it shows the, you know, the state is really trusted in us and really trusted in the program and kind of the work that we're doing. So with that, we've grown to fund nine graduate students over the course of these five years. So we're co currently funding nine um, students. And then, you know, kind of like our exposure within the facilities has grown quite a bit as well. So it really started with only really working with about 10 to 15%. And now our exposure in some of the facilities upward to like 80, 90% of working with the kids within the facility. And some of that is because the facilities have decreased the amount of youth um, within the setting, but also a lot of it is just, we've ramped up our programming and the different things that we have to offer. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that, that's really interesting and fantastic to hear about 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 how what started as kind of a smaller project has, has blossomed and grown into a huge endeavor. Um, you know, you know, one thing that, that people might uh, be thinking as they're listening to that, I, I know that I am, uh, is where does the money come from to fund all of those students? I mean, it's it's wonderful just to be able to fund nine students for their education is fantastic. You know, on top of all of the, the great work that y'all are doing, um, does that money come from the state? Yeah, so we'll, 
we can answer that a couple of different ways. In the very early years, that money came from nowhere and it came from sort of volunteering and um, being creative with um, honoring like course credit to students. Um, We were fortunate. NIU has um, provided us with some uh, assistantships or we've applied for assistantship opportunities with NIU that um, we've been able to support our graduate students with. NIU is awesome at supporting, especially um, students from marginalized backgrounds. And that happens to be um, a coincidence of who tends to be a great fit for positions like this. Um, So we have gotten some support from NIU, but um, a By year two or three, um, the state, the Illinois Department of Juvenile Justice started to get um, wind of kind of the reach of our program and and the feedback from the kids and the staff was so abundantly good that they're like, oh yeah, let's bring you on as a partner. So now we have um, state funding that helps support our program and then as well as some um, private donors and we're looking into getting corporate donors and, and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's, um, that's really cool. And, and, and I, and it just shows that sometimes um, if you're willing to kind of plant the seeds and get creative during those first few years, because, you know, it's, it's, it can be difficult to do things without funding, but starting on a small scale, it seems like that, that happens a bit. So if you're willing to kind of put in that extra work, plant those seeds, then things can really grow into to broader projects that, that um, are, are well-received and, and well-resourced. So uh, really cool to hear about that. Um, uh, you talked about pickleball in the middle there. I I, uh, I played pickleball um, uh, a couple weekends ago, and I thought of you. Uh, I, I was I was up in Iowa and and played with a group of like I, I a group of like probably sixty plus, uh, and, and they they made me look pretty bad. That tends to happen, but I feel like <laughs> I'm doing my, my job if in this sort of small world of kinesiology, physical education, people hear pickleball and think of John Jacobs, then I think I'm, I'm happy with that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's, it's funny because Jen, like pickleball has become extremely popular more recently, but to be fair, she has really been on the pickleball bandwagon for a couple of years now. And when she first told me about it, I did laugh because, you know, my first inclination was people over the age of 50 and 60 playing. Um, and I ended up giving her a hard time about it, but then I actually played summer uh, this this two summers ago at camp and really enjoyed it and felt yeah. a little bad that I had to eat some of my words. But uh, she's yeah, it's been it's been fun to play it with her and then also to implement it. It's actually taken uh, shape. The youth in the facility are really um, into it and excited oh. about it, and it, it just it speaks more honestly towards because typically you know in that setting basketball and kind of like football rule the day, but it really speaks to the youth, if, if the instructor is excited and passionate about something, that that excitement and passion um, really integrates and assimilates into the youth, but also just like the relationships, you know, I mean, like, J- like Dr. Jacobs or Jan or whatever, whatever we're calling her here, um, she she kind of ran a pickleball program that with youth that she had really strong relationships with. And she basically was like, listen, like, this is gonna be awesome. Just trust me a little bit. Um, and they did. And it's really blossomed. And it's been really successful. That's, that's super cool. Um so I uh, appreciate you guys uh, sharing a little bit of that background um, before uh, or let, let's kind of narrow down the focus of the conversation a little bit. And maybe maybe Zach will start this question uh, with you. Um, you know, the, the specific article that we're using is the anchor point for this study. Um, could, could you talk to us just about that for a few minutes, perhaps as, you know, as, as an example of, of some of the types of research that, that you do with the project? 
Yeah, so I can kind of speak to, and I'll speak to that paper specifically, but more broadly, we look at um, a couple of different areas specific to um, the youth that we're working with. So one of the things that we're looking at is physical activity levels and MVPA within programming, just to see, like, are these youth youth getting physical activity? Because unfortunately, the youth are so um, sedentary within these populations. So the research is showing that the youth are getting anywhere from two to 3,000 steps in an entire day, which yeah. is extremely alarming, especially since CDC wants them to get anywhere from 10 to 12,000 steps. So we are looking at that um, and kind of like as we've expanded, we've started to shift some of our research to look at the specific teacher behaviors as well and like look at how they're Im- implementing programming. But then also it's more more of like the qualitative stuff. So looking at life skill transfer, we're looking at some of the other things that we're doing specific to the college readiness program. But specific to the paper that we sent in, um, basically what the purpose of that paper was, is we were looking to look at the physical activity levels within programming. But the other kind of key to this was looking at the social behaviors of the youth that were incarcerated during our, what we call like a flex session, which is more of like our structured sports leadership program. So essentially we were looking at about 23 participants that were enrolled in programming. And what we did was we used SOCARP to code both the physical activity levels, but also the social social behaviors that they had. So from a physical activity standpoint, what we found is that we were hitting about 51% moderate to vigorous physical activity throughout programming, which is um, like kind of that gold standard specific to physical education. So that's obviously a positive thing that we were able to do. But the other probably more beneficial finding that we found that was very interesting to us was we were looking at the amount of pro-social physical and also a pro-social non-physical behaviors. And what we were finding was there's anywhere from like 15 to 17 um, like interactions that were positive within a 45 to 50 minute session, which is like, it's something if you're not like familiar with the research, it might be like, is that a lot? Is that terrible? But what we found is that was double or triple triple the amount of typical elementary, middle school, and high school recess and unstructured times. Wow. So we were having way more positive interactions youth to youth and youth to instructor than what's typically seen within other settings that are like similar sports settings. Yeah. So that's the first. The second is, which is interesting, is we also had a pretty low amount of like the antisocial, which is more of like those negative um, responses that were both social and physical. We had a, like, a, essentially on par with the amount of the, the verbal negative behaviors, but actually less physical negative behaviors within this jail setting. And to kind of paint the picture of what this jail setting looks like is we're working in where this study took place was a maximum security juvenile detention center in the state of Illinois. So essentially, roughly half of the youth that we work with were in for murder. So we're not looking at like petty theft and those types of things. So that finding is really interesting. And then the other finding that was fairly on par with the literature was that about 2% of these like negative behaviors were ignored um, by the, the youth within the facility, which again, so something negative would happen to a youth and they would choose to ignore it and not respond to it. And that's actually a touch higher than what you see with elementary school students, uh, middle school students as well. So what we found and what we're excited about is that the life skills that we're introducing and teaching, the youth are actually taking those skills but then implementing it within programming. And we're actually, again, according to this study, is we're seeing more positive um, behaviors within programming than is typically in those unstructured times, but then also less of those negative behaviors, which is exciting for us. 
Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's excellent, Zach. Um, you know, I, I guess maybe a follow up question that, that, that Jen, I might throw to you um, uh, is, um, you know, when before we were started to record and we talked about kind of data related to this project and the things that you're doing from a research perspective, more generally, you mentioned qualitative data and, and interviews. And so I, I was just wondering if you wanted to kind of paint the picture of, of um, you know, what that's looked like, what other forms of data that, that you've worked with uh, in this setting beyond the, the quantitative survey data that we saw uh, in, in this particular study. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I am involved in a lot of the qualitative work and something we've learned along the way. Actually, we learned this pretty quickly. And this is just a nature of the population we're working with. We figured out that we have to be really sensitive and careful about the interview process mm -hmm. um, because there's this power differential and the whole idea of um, asking questions as friendly and um, informative as we mean them to be, um, may naturally feel like the youth as interrogation. Um, and unfortunately, this is a pop population that's been persecuted is maybe a strong word, but I'm going to use it here um, through like interrogation techniques from um, kind of our police forces, um, whether they were warned or not, but that's just sort of a traumatic thing that they have in their background. And so because of the power differential, because of some of like the sociological factors of our age and gender and race and education level, um, we figured out quickly that um, if not done tactfully, um, that sort of question and answer process that's really traditional to research doesn't doesn't work well and or is can be harmful. Yeah. Um, so we've tried to be creative with how to like like elevate their voices in a way that doesn't feel like question, answer, question, answer. Um, and that, that besides the point is something that's really difficult with like mm. teenagers in general anyways. So if you kind of compound that with their traumatic backgrounds, it's tough. So yeah. a couple of projects that we're really proud of, um, recently, this one is impressed right now. Recently we, um, did a study on the meaning of sport throughout their lives. And we used it through the lens of critical race theory um, because nearly all of the youth that we work with are youth of color. Um, and we had them tell stories about um, sport memories throughout their life to try to understand how they conceptualize what sport is presently. And that gives us kind of insider information on how to keep using that as hopefully a positive tool in their lives. Mm -hmm. um, but we sort of used a narrative approach there. And then a study that we've got on the docket that we're really, really pumped for that's going to be led by our um, PhD student, um, Gabrielle Bennett, is going to be asking them to identify turning point moments in their life. Turning points being like, I had a fork in the road and I chose this path instead of this path. Um, and presumably that led to some negative consequences related to being convicted of crimes or involved in gang life. And so we're going to ask them about those moments, but then um, in a like a series interview approach, in another interview, we're going to ask them to rewrite those moments and reconceptualize what they might, what they could have had for their future should they have taken a different route. So I think the philosophy there that our research team tries to kind of stick to is that we're we're selecting research methods, one that are prioritizing the individual's well-being above all, but two, like still looking for opportunities to 
have them like learn something about themselves, possibly strengthen our relationship with them in the process. Like those are opportunities there that we feel just are worth it. Yeah. Yeah. And that actually uh, transitions really well into the next question that I was going to ask. You started to, you know, talking about methods a little bit, and this is well outside of my area of comfort, but I do know that working with incarcerated individuals in a general sense has some added levels of complexity uh, for, for good reason, because uh, researchers have in the past uh, abused and taken advantage of incarcerated individuals. When you add on that you're working with incarcerated youth, incarcerated youth um, I, I would assume that that's created a context that has been very fruitful for you in terms of learning um, uh, about, about new ways of, of conducting research and approaching your methods. So just kind of expanding upon the methodological considerations that you already raised um, through Project Flex and the associated research, what have you learned from a methods perspective? I can... The, the first thing I think we should talk through, because I think I, I wonder if anyone's interested or wondering about this, is the IRB process. Sure. Um, so we um, we went through the review board process here at NIU, um, and we anticipated that it was going to be a pretty lengthy and burdensome, burdensome process. Um, and it was definitely lengthy. But I will say that in terms of like the 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 nice thing about it was the the people that were on the board they were really vested in making sure that the youth were going to be protected and they it really there was at no point in the process and this was around a seven or eight month process for us which some might think that's long some might think it's short um but at no point in the process did i not feel that the people on the board were not looking out for the betterment of the youth so one example that and i, I can give is that um, an example of this is we were going to have the youth do journaling and journal about their experiences within Project Flex, journal about their experiences in their home life, and that we were going to use that as a research tool, but we were also going to use that as a, a tool to just build relationships. Because when we started, we really, you know, obviously we'd never interact with the youth, and we were going to take that as like a, a relationship building. We were going to do something similar to give to the youth as well. And one of the pushback that we got about it was, what if they were to write something in there about a guard or about their experience within the facility, and then someone within the facility would be privy to that information. They might be treated negatively, which we in no men even thought about that. And But as soon as we heard it, we're like, of course, like the last thing we want is to cause these kids any harm. So it was something that was really cool because it provided the, the, the university did a great job of providing more insight into us and made a... a it forced us to kind of look at it more holistically on how, what we're doing to make sure that we're protecting the youth in all facets. Um, so I think that that's something that I think is really, is, is a cool process. And I think besides it taking a long period of time, the, it was really interesting to see that the university was pro what we were doing, because I think they saw a lot of the benefits in what we were doing. Jenna, it looks like you have. Yeah. I'll just mention sort of a really big picture lesson that we learned in this, in the research process has been um, that we're just not going to do rigorous research. Like the idea of rigor, what we've learned in our doc, doc courses and, and what we're taught is our best practices in research to get the most rigorous research that right now that's just not feasible in, in a prison setting. Um, anything from like participants not showing up on days that they, they have no control over. We have no control over, um, or imagine like just having to lose complete con 
contact with a participant. When they get released, we don't know that. Sometimes they don't know that. So we'll invest a lot into having them as a participant and then they're gone and then we can't do follow-ups or, um, so we just have to drop that. Um, the, the kind of volatility of the environment is just take like an open school environment times 10. So we've just sort of figured out like, nope, we're not going to have super rigorous research. It's going to take longer always than we need to. I think Zach will even mention in this study, um, there were uh, numerous observations we had to do and we thought, okay, that'll probably take two months. And I think it took four or five. Um, And that's just what we've put up with as part of action-based research and working with this group. Well, and, and, and along those lines, if you don't mind me interjecting real quick, Zach, I, I wonder, and I'll pose it as a question, um, I, I wonder whether or not it, it, it's it's not the fact that the research being done is not rigorous, but that the concept of rigor is relative, uh, at least in part to the environment that it's being done in. Uh, and there are certain things that are possible and, and uh, advisable in other environments, in some environments. And in other environments, doing those things uh, is not possible and definitely not advisable. Yeah, I think, Kevin, I think you nailed it. Um, I can give you a couple examples of that as well. But I think just looking at when we started, to, before we even looked into doing any research, we were just kind of diving into the literature. Mm. Um, and a lot of the physical activity or the fitness data that's out there, or even the interviews for that matter, the end might be three participants. Um, and I think, like, like you said, it's just some of the the instruments or the tools that you think might be normal part of, for example, doing interviews are just not feasible. Like, so for example, the first three years that we were in the facility, we were not allowed to bring a recording device into the facility. So we would have to transcribe everything by hand. So imagine like, you know, we've, we've been working with some of the kids, you know, just picture two or three years in, we've been working with some of these kids for two or three years. So there is a relationship there, um, a pretty strong relationship, but at the same time, like to give more context on like what this looks like for, you know, I I think Jen described this as like nerdy. So I'm going to say slightly cool. I don't know about nerdy. We're definitely not cool, but I don't know about nerdy. But so again, so there was a youth that we'd known for several years and we were talking about kind of like about race. And he was like, you know, I hate, I hate white people. I hate all white people. And he was telling me this and I'm like, all right, like, that's cool. Like what? You don't hate me. Like I, we have a good relationship. So you can't hate every white person. He's like, no, like you're different. And I'm like, okay, like why, like, why do you hate white people? Like what's, you know, like, where does this come from? And he's like, well, like my grandma or my grandfather died, like a white person killed my grandpa, like a white person killed my dad. And I'm like, hmm, okay, like, that makes sense. I can see like where that might come from. But even if you think about from an interview process, if you're interviewing somebody that there's a relationship there, but there's not full trust, like there's just never going to be full trust. Um, And it's even, and that's in any environment, but even in this environment, more so these kids, the youth are just so guarded, um, especially and a lot of times from, you know, white males or white females. So if we're trying to write notes when people are taking, you know, making statements and they say something that like is like, you know, a little bit more touchy about a a murder or a crime and we're like vigorously trying to write things down so we can capture it, that's going to ruin the flow of an interview. And it's also, you know, that kid, I've seen it so many times where we're taking notes and he's looking at us writing and he essentially like changes what he, not changes what yeah. he's saying, but he loses the flow because he's like, well, yeah. shit, I don't know what he's writing right now. Yep, yep, yep. So that's something that just, it completely changed the recess process, research process for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, again, it almost a lot, it, it, it 
it's like what's feasible, what's not. Another another easy example, more in the context of like this study is with systematic observation, typically you're going to film everything that's done. You can't bring in any technology. So there's no filming. So everything is live coded. Um, and then, you know, same thing with, it took us about three years to get accelerometers within the facility. And even yeah. now that we have, we have to check them in, check them out per youth. And they disassembled the uh, accelerometer to make sure that they can't use it as a shank. So these are the types of things that we're going through with even something as sim basic and simple as like a small little accelerometer. Yeah, that's a, th th those are fantastic examples. It really it really brings it to life and shows you know all the considerations uh, th that you need to take into account. And I think it also kind of transitions into um, you know a, a, the next question that I was going to throw out to, to both of you, which is just kind of talking a little bit about. The, the, the background behind this work, uh, the trajectory that it's set you on and, and how it's kind of become, you know, part of your scholarly identity. When I think about the two of you now, one of the first things I think about, if I was asked to describe your work to somebody else, other things would come to mind, of course, but one of those core things would be would be Project Flex. Um, knowing both of you going back to when you were doctoral students, when all three of us were doctoral students, I, I don't know that that was necessarily where you saw things going at that point. So, so how did you get here and how has being here shaped where will you go next? Now, when you're asking the question, my parents ask me is, why does my daughter work in a jail? Like, why is she devoting her life to this? Um, but I think that you're accurately capturing it. Zach and I both had our our passion areas, Zach with sport education and me with sort of after school sport-based youth development, summer camps. Like we had our different routes and that was like, yep, this is what we're hanging our hat on. Um, and then truthfully, this, this program started as a like, hey, we should collaborate on something. What do you like? What do I like? Let's find something that that overlaps. And I have a background working with gang-affiliated youth in Chicago. And Zach worked with incarcerated female populations during his PhD at Alabama. Um, he was teaching physical education to um, um, young women. And we kind of identified yeah, we, we really are drawn to those sort of forgotten, isolated populations. And so this started as, uh, truthfully, a cold call to a local prison. Um, and, and it was not meant to be a research agenda. It was meant to be service and give back and let's see what we can do. Um, but as Zach mentioned, as we started to get in there and find that there was just this mutual need on their end and then on our end to like kind of like hone our skills in a different setting. That's when we started to dive into the research and see, as Zach said, there is little to none. Um, you know, there's going to be a paper coming out soon um, by uh, um, one by our team and a researcher from University of Delaware. Um, it's just kind of a scoping review on all the work that's been done in the area of criminal justice and physical activity and there's maybe 40-ish studies total, 30-ish 30, studies total, and that includes adult populations, and that's mostly adult populations, and this is like in the history of research. Um, and then in terms of university um, prison partnerships, to our knowledge, there's just one, um, yep. and you're speaking with them. Um, and then there are just few fewer studies even um, looking at um, youth, youth populations at all. And so 
part of it is, wow, we have an opportunity to really kind of change the course of what is known about this area. But then part of it was, we need to learn about this area if we're going to keep you know, running this program effectively. So a lot of the research that we're doing is actually out of necessity to help dictate how can we keep making an impact with these individuals in a way that is showing up in evidence-based form. Well, and I like the way that you describe that, Jen, because that kind of brings together the intersection of research and practice, right? So it's it's you're doing this work, uh, it, it, it's, it's service, um, it, it's also probably a teaching focus uh, in a way now because you have those graduate uh, students who are working with you uh, and then you're collecting the data. So you're kind of hitting this trifecta and doing it in a way that, that I think you're right. I think it's quite unique. Um, um, you know, I, I, I brag on you guys sometimes when I hear about cool things happening and I, I want to contribute to the conversation. It's almost like, yeah, well, have you heard about this? Um, Cause this is, this is really unique and innovative. Um, so uh, Aww, thanks, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're running a little bit short on time. So I've got I've got one last question and then maybe something fun we could do for a minute. Um, so that last question, and, and, and I understand um, that, that you uh, you may need to be picky, choosy or censored in how you respond to this, given the, the population that you work with and the need to protect them. But do you have any stories accompanying the process uh, of completing uh, this investigation, working with Project Flex, that you you feel comfortable sharing, that give us a look under the hood, and bonus points if uh, if you can make us laugh. Okay, well, okay, so I'll give you just a couple a couple of stories that come to mind. Um, I think one of them is just, and this is not the one to make you laugh, so don't don't judge me based on this first one. Sure, sure, sure. Um, but the first, so with systematic observation, um, you know, it's a lot of coding and circling things on a piece of paper. And inevitably, you know, I, I took this, this project was, I think it was like a three or four months. Um, every time I'd go in the facility, I was live coding. So the youth had known me for a while. And then now, and I went from interacting and kind of like leading some sessions, but mostly our graduate students led, but it was mostly just, you know, my role is more, you know, building the relationships and getting to know the kids. And I went from that to now I'm just like this creepy guy in the, in the corner, like circling things on a piece of paper. And for a note, we're on a Zoom and Kevin just laughed. So I, I won that. Um, but anyway, so I had a youth come up to me and he's like, what are you what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, you know, I kind of gave him like a Cliff Notes version of what I'm looking at. And he's like, what are you like a creeper watching me like run around? Because I was actually coding him because um, I told him, I was like, look, you know, depending on, you know, are you walking, standing still, all this stuff? He's like, what are you like checking out my ass? And I'm like, nope, definitely not doing that. Um, but one of my other, one of my other like favorite stories, um, this actually comes from, so we look at physical activity. We also look at fitness levels and we look at BMI and obesity rates. And honestly, that's to go back to kind of to loop into your previous question. That's something I'm like, uber, uber interested in. But one of the things that I, I think when I think of Kevin now, like, you know, obviously the socialization stuff, but advocacy for physical education is something that I think always comes to mind. And one of the things that like I either learned from you and I'm sure it's you and others, but it's, you have to advocate for like what you're doing. So, and also advocate for the kids. So a lot of the stuff that we're doing because there's nothing out there is showing how beneficial the work that we are doing within Project Flex is for the youth and making sure that they're active, making sure that they're not gaining weight as at an enormous rate. Um, so one story that I had, so we have these youth do the pacer test um, so every so often and we had most of these kids are pretty competitive as, as am I. And I scored a pretty good, you know, I typically, I will sometimes like run with the kids to like demonstrate it or whatnot. 
And we had a youth that had the highest score on the pacer. Right? It was like a 78 or something like that. And it was like one of our higher scores. He was over, overly competitive. And I was explaining to him that I was like, you know, it's getting getting close to that time where we're going to have to run the pacer again. Sometimes they weren't thrilled about it. And I told him, I was like, look, if I'm here, like I'm going to kick your ass in the pacer. And he looks at me and he's like, what'd you say to me? And I was like, yeah, the pacer, like I'm going to, like, I'm going to, I'm going to kick your ass. And he starts to like size me up and he's like, you think you can kick my ass? And I'm like, yeah, like, I don't, like, I don't, it's not even a question. Like I'm going to beat you in this. And he didn't realize that the running test was called the pacer test. He just thought I actually wanted to fight him and beat his ass. So, and he's a bit, and again, like I'm not like a physical person at all by any means, but and this kid could surely kick my ass. Um, but he's like literally like sizing me up and I'm like, look, like <laughs> I'm at the running test. And as soon as it like clicked for him, cause he went to like, I'm about to fight this kid to, uh, Oh, like that. And then yeah, he yeah. clicked to like, well, I'm still going to beat you in that too. Um, and that's, so that's like one of the more PG stories that I have. That's more, sp- I have a lot of, we have a lot of good stories as you can imagine. Oh yeah. Um, but as like, that's a very like research based one that comes to. Uh, in, in I'll that- share one. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah. I'll share one. It's just a little, it's just a short one. Um, so I, I mentioned earlier that um, being inquisitive with the kids is sometimes tricky, um, especially because they might feel defensive. Um, but I've been in this program long enough to where I have a reputation um, where it's like, oh, Dr. J has so many questions all the time. Like all she does is ask questions. And it's like a bit of like, a, I hate it, but it's like a little bit deep down. I think they love it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's not just research, but I just always have questions. I just like ref- having them reflect. They like, no, that's what I'm all about. My two favorite things, they're, my two favorite words they know are goals and reflection. Um, but there was one time where it was not a research day. We were not there for research reasons. Um, and we were playing some game um, in the gym. And then I took a break and went to sit on the sideline, um, just like perched against the wall. And one kid um, who we'll call a pickleball superstar, he'll know who he is um, if he listens to this. But he came over and just like sat down next to me casually and didn't say anything. And neither did I because I was going to wait for him to make his move, What he what he wanted. And it was quiet for maybe a minute, but I could feel there was that anticipation. And then he just like looks over me. He's like, dang, Dr. J, why haven't you asked me a question yet? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, well, I, you, you want me to ask a question? Sure. And I'm like, how's your day? He's like, no, no, you'd never ask that question. Ask like a real question, like a Dr. J question. And I'm like, okay, let's dive right in. I'm like, talk to me about drugs. And then he just talked about all these different drugs for like, and we had an hour long conversation. He's like, well, then there's this one and this one. And, and I'm like, tell me more. And I think I say that like, cause I think it's comical, but also because, um, I think that through our research, we're sort of teaching them that they actually are experts. Um, and it, it doesn't really matter what they're experts on. You know, right. I, I don't think anybody would maybe brag that they're experts on drugs. Um, but he was so proud to be able to share um, and not necessarily from his own usage, but just being exposed to that type of world. Here's this and this is what this means. And you've never heard of this one. And this is what this means. And here's how much it costs. And here's how you sell it. And and here here is somebody with a, a PhD and somebody who dropped out of school in sixth grade. Um, and the, the one who dropped out of school in sixth grade is eloquent, 
eloquently speaking about a topic that he is an expert on and, and sharing it with confidence. And, and it was a conversant thing where we're going back and forth. And so I just, I love that story. I love that um, the kids can feel safe around us and our team and want to share things and, and have that empowering feeling that they're the expert on something. Yeah. Yeah. So um, a, a couple times now, uh, as you've spoken um, on the podcast, and this is, this is maybe a hard question that I'm formulating in my head on the run. So forgive me. Um, but, but I've sensed, and I'm not sure if I'm using language, right. I, I've sensed a, um, an air of advocacy in your words for, for these young people. Uh, and I wonder if, if you, if, if, if that's intentional and if you see that as one in the same as, as both your service and the research you're doing. So is that, you know, like, like action research or um, emancipatory type research where you're, where you're intentionally trying to advocate for these populations that, that nobody else, as you put before is advocating for. I think that's like a really beautiful way of of making it sound like more important than what we're doing. If I'm speaking really candidly, I think that we're advocating for them as just an individual, maybe less as the population, but yeah. like Zach and I, I've seen him in action doing it. He, he, he isn't as inquisitive as me or invasive as me about questions, but he loves to ask like, what's it like in here? What's the food? Like, what do you do when you wake up? What do you, you know, he loves asking just about their days and he's so candid with them. Like, we don't know this stuff. We don't, you guys are the ones that live this and get to share this and you hold that power and knowledge. And I think at like a very granular level, we want them to feel like capable people that hold their experiences as a way to teach others. Just like that's what we do as professors. We hold our experiences to teach others. We just kind of went through different educational systems. Like you can use the, the, they went through the school of hard knocks and we went through the university setting. Um, and so I do think we are advocating for them, um, to feel like real people. And yeah. I hate that that's something that needs to be advocated for to anybody, because of course they're real people, but time and time again, we return back to, and this is starting to emerge in some of our research, some of their most powerful moments are the ones that they feel like they're they're like a peer at NIU too. Like when they come to campus, the their best, most memorable moments are the ones where they're standing in line at the dining hall and one of the students says to them, Hey, is that fried chicken good? And they loved that moment because they got looked at like a normal yeah. 17-year-old instead of somebody yeah. who committed a crime. Like a human being before anything else. Yeah, that, that's that's powerful stuff. Um, that's powerful stuff, Jen. Um, so so we, we are just about out of time here. I I, I hate to, to to rush to closure, but um, th there's one last thing I'd like to do, and this is the first time I've ever tried to do it with with uh, with two guests. So it, it might be a little bit awkward and a little bit different, but let's embrace that awkwardness. Um, so because we're trying to get to know the stories behind the research, it's fun to end with some rapid fire questions that help us get to know you a little bit better. I have six categories. Are you comfortable giving me your quickest response? I almost want to give my response. Like, I almost want to answer for Zach and Zach Ooh. answers for me. Oh, you want to do like that? that you want to do that? that? Let's okay. do it. This will be interesting. I haven't done it this way before. Uh, favorite color? Purple. Blue. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> favorite <laughs> animal? Dog. That's 
right? Cat. I don't really know. You don't like animals. I actually I'm don't. In, I'm in like a, I have a three-year-old and one-year-old. So like right now, my favorite animal is probably like, like, a, like a penguin or something. Just because she's like <laughs> penguins or like a porcupine. Uh, Michael, Hemphill, uh, Michael Hemphill has one of the most memorable um, responses to that question with full confidence. He answered duck. <laughs> oh, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So favorite season of the year. She's going to say fall. Mm -hmm. Zach is going to say summer because of summer camp. Summer. You, go. you guys are doing pretty good. Favorite we, spent all, we spent a lot of time together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, favorite place on earth? Ooh, um, I'm going to say mm, parents' lake house in Michigan. Yeah, it, it was that or the pickleball court, which I think you right. probably would have gone to next. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say for Zach, um, I'm going to say a sentimental one that you're not going to think, but I think it's actually the right answer. I know <laughs> how much you love your family walks. Ooh, and so one. that's where my mind went. That's a good one. I, my mind went to like location. So I was going to say Punta Cana, but that's a good one. That's a good answer. Oh, it, it's fun. Um, and I don't know that I intentionally do it this way, but but at the end, when we do this rapid fire, this is where all the kind of personal and fun stuff comes out about people. And it's it's really interesting. So so two more uh, favorite food. Um, favorite food. So for those of you that don't know Jen, well, she's a vegan, which I also take full credit for because she was a vegetarian. But I would call her a vegan for multiple years until I did the whole 30 and for those of you that don't know me well, I am about as opposite of a vegan as you can get. Like I try to avoid vegan friendly foods. So it's some sort of a vegan, like she also likes blue bananas though, but I don't know, some sort of a vegan pizza. <laughs> Something like that. And just for the record, Zach, vegan food just means vegetables. So you, <laughs> the world, you avoid vegetables willingly. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Okay. Um, I would say his favorite food, I'm going to go with his wife's homemade pizza, or actually I happen to know his wife makes amazing tofu broccoli. Um, and that is vegan and he enjoys that. So he doesn't avoid that food. That's good. That's uh, that's fantastic. Last but not least favorite thing to drink. Fireball. Did <laughs> <laughs> you have I wish you would have said tea, but yes, I do love fireball. If we're going, if we're going alcohol, well, Zach drinks two things. He drinks water or Jack and Coke. Those are the only things I've ever seen him drink is in his entire life. So it's one of those two things. So, so, so my family has a tradition. Every time we get together, either my dad or my cousin uh, brings along a sleeve of fireball nips and at like what feels like the most inopportune time possible, he'll just crack them open and pass them out. And you just you just have to do it. I happen to recall a specific um, study that the three of us collaborated on and that Fireball <laughs> may have been involved. And I'm not sure if this will make it in the podcast, but I'm just going to mention that. <laughs> That it played an integral role in data collection and analysis. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You guys are so fun. Um, th this was great. Thank you so much for spending an hour with me. Um, as a reminder, uh, the, the article uh, is uh, that we used as the, 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 the focal point here um, is impressed with the Journal of Correctional Healthcare. 
Uh, once that gets published, um, at least ahead of print and it's posted online, we'll get it linked in the show notes for this episode. Uh, thank you again, uh, uh, everybody for listening and we'll see you next time.